on social, which means we have three weeks left in our Deuteronomy series. And we talked about this some during our Q&R last week. If you weren't here, you can go back. That's posted online. There were some good questions asked, and I appreciate all of you asking those questions. Uh, and it helped Kyle and I. We talked about it this, some this week. Uh, it really helped us do what we hoped it would do, which is to kind of pivot a little bit and, and to approach these final three sermons of the series on Deuteronomy a little bit differently. To take uh, not a completely different angle, because we're still in the text, we're still in this section, but it, it's going to help us kind of reframe, because we wanted to explore this idea that we're about to step into of this uh, curses and blessings in a little bit different kind of way. And so we have three sermons left, and this, the context in terms of what you're reading in the narrative, we, if, if you've forgotten this or you've, this has been lost on you, we are still in this sermon from Moses. This entire book of Deuteronomy has been given in one setting. This is one day, this one moment. They come and they sit in this space, and Moses goes through all of this. So narratively speaking, nothing has changed uh, in terms of the theme or like kind of the thrust of what the sermon is that Moses is giving. He's shifting hard now to this kind of like vision statement, this moment, this space where he's kind of saying, okay, you are now going to go into the land. They'd done the theology, they'd done the exegesis of what the law had been given 40 years ago. He had given the context, the place, the history of who the people of God were and are and continue to be. And he's saying, okay, now it's time. Now it's time for this to happen. And he gives, I said this a couple weeks ago, or maybe it's last week. Like, it's, this is the uh, Coach Taylor Friday Night Lights moment. This is the speech. This is like, he's, he's getting them amped up and is excited. But if you have read Deuteronomy, this is a really bad speech uh, if you're trying to amp people up, this moment. And this is like, this is the vibe, this is the sense, we get it. But he's going to say like, you are this people, we're going out there. Oh yeah, by the way, uh, the, the teams before you have all lost, and you're going to lose too. But still, you need to do it, you need to go, you need to, you need to play hard, whatever it is, like, but you're going to lose. It's like, that's, Moses, maybe not the best way to encourage people or to amp people up to go and to do the thing that you've asked them to do. And yet, that's where we find ourselves, is in this moment, this space, in the final section of Deuteronomy. And so he's saying to them, this is what it's going to be like. And he gives this long list of blessings and of curses. So let me read our text for today, and then I will give a little bit more context uh, of what is going on here, maybe thematically or kind of... We're going to pull up and go like 30, 40,000 feet for a second because nothing's changed. They're still there. It's one big sermon, one big long day. Our 40-minute sermons pale in comparison to an entire 30 chapters of one big long sermon. So be glad that, you know, things have changed over time. So here are our text for today. It is in Deuteronomy 27. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to jump and read verses 9 through 13. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands that I give you today. This is where we've been, the commands over the last three weeks that we've been talking about here at Mosaic, studied in the text of Deuteronomy. Keep these when you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you. Set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. A land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Now, quick note, just to think, uh, why would you cover the rocks with plaster? What he's asking them to do is basically create a monument of two ginormous stones. 
And your mind should go back to the two stone tablets of Exodus and the Ten Commandments. And so he's saying, we have expanded upon this, and they are meant to serve in the same kind of way. So go when you go over there, take those big stones, and write the law on them. And it's Exodus image, and it's to remind them of who Moses was and who the people of God were and what God did for them at Sinai. And so he's saying, take this and go, and then you're going to go into this place that has been promised. Land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God of your ancestors promised you. And then, you when, when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord our God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool on them. And then Moses and the Leviticus priests said to all Israel, Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. And on the same day, Moses commanded the people, When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's always good to end a, a scripture reading on a, a word like Naphtali, you know, like it's, it's a good way to end a, a bunch of names, tribes. So these are the tribes of Israel. So here's the context, okay? What they're supposed to do in, in the story, he's telling them in the sermon, he's saying, okay, go over, you're about to go across the Jordan. And when you do, the first thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go and set up these stones that are going to remind you of the Ten Commandments, that's going to remind you of the law of the Lord, that's going to give you ways to live and to function and to exist. And when you do so, you're supposed to come to them and, and make an altar there such that you are to give worship and pray. So anytime you start hearing altar language, we think of sacrifice, we think of kind of archaic law. Sometimes it's hard for us, I think, in our minds to kind of understand what's going on there. But when you see altar language, you should think worship service. You should think praise, this moment where you're going to come and you're going to stand before Yahweh and you're going to lift up your hands and you're going to lift up your voices. And you should think celebration. Altars and, and sacrifice for the people of God were always so much more than just giving up the thing that they held on to so dearly. But it was feast. It was excitement. It wasn't just painstaking, oh my gosh, i got to give my best animal this, that, or the other. It is, no, it's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. And we hope that these moments can be similar. Sundays are for feasting. They're for celebrating, is what we've said for thousands of years in context of the church. And this is what they're talking about. So they're supposed to set all this up. And they're not supposed to be like, oh my gosh, we can never live under the law. We can never do all these things that Moses has commanded us to. They're supposed to celebrate the gift that these commands and this law is supposed to be to them. They're supposed to rejoice in it and feast that God has been so gracious and kind to give them something like this. And if you've read the Psalms, if you've read the wisdom literature... You would see this again and again, right? Like you see how they are always thankful for the law of the Lord. It is kind. It is gracious. It's a gift. It is sweet as honey. And this is what they're supposed to understand. That they're supposed to go in and to celebrate. And to do this thing. And to take this moment and go, okay, this is who we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be the people of God. We are supposed to be the ones that come and enter into this land and do the thing that God has called his people to do. And it's laid before them, a choice. Now, to come out, okay, so that's where they're going to go. It's what he physically wants them to do. It's what we just read. And this is the setting for where they're going to list out all these blessings and curses 
in the next handful of chapters that we're going to read over the next two, day, two Sundays. So next week, Kyle's going to go into the idea of blessings and talk about what it means and what God's uh, offering in those blessings and God's redemption to his people. And so we're going to look kind of at this whole section each Sunday as a whole instead of sort of, it's, it's, and it'll be thematically. So we're in this context, and Kyle will do blessings, then I'll do curses on our final Sunday. So it's a really great way to end 11 Sundays in Deuteronomy is to end with curses and death and how it's just all going to fail. But yet that's how Deuteronomy ends. Not just Deuteronomy, though. This is how the Torah ends. The five books of the Bible that start Hebrew scripture, that they all memorize. Every good Jewish boy, at least. Uh, you know, we think probably some girls, but at least the boys we know for sure would have memorized the Torah at a young age. They would have come together and they would have studied this. And this meant everything to them. And if you're a really good student, you got to go on and do some other things. And, you know, you'd learn the prophets and you were familiar with all these writings. But the Torah, I mean, everybody knew the Torah. It's like John 3.16 for us, you know. I mean, we all know the basics of Jesus and the gospel if you've been raised in the church. So they knew this. And this is how it ends. is with curses and death and a promise of failure. And this should bother us because it's really a bad way to end it. This is why I'm saying that Moses' speech is, is not a great way to end these five books. But there's something that's interesting that's happening here. Because this is the end of the Torah, five books. And so there's this way in which it's bookending. Books can be served as bookends, and this is what's happening. It's bookending these five chapter, or these five books, this story of God's people and what they're meant to be and what they're being called to. And what you see is in Deuteronomy and in Genesis, more than any other books in the Bible, there is a heavy emphasis on the idea or theme of blessing and curse. You'll hear that language throughout Scripture. But these two books really like hone in on this. And I think those that compiled the Torah and put it together, the authors of these five books, I think they do this on purpose. They get Genesis and Deuteronomy to look so similar to feel so similar to one another. So it's what good storytelling does, right? It's a, a great comedian, does a callback, comes all the way back around, you're like, I didn't see it coming. Like, the end of the joke, the, the bit was the same as the start. It's what good stories do. Good songs do this. They come back around, and they're doing this because they're talented storytellers and writers, and they're smart, and they're educated. And also, it's to remind you of what's being communicated here, what's being told which is this idea that God has placed before his people an option. Not only in these chapters are these bigger themes of blessing and curse being held and bookended, but even down to what Moses instructs the tribes to do once they cross the Jordan. We're back on the edge of the garden again in this language. We're back in this space, in this place where we see that there is a way in which what is happening with the people of God looks a lot like what happens with Adam and Eve. And there's a way in which what's happening with Adam and Eve and the people of God in Deuteronomy 27 or what's going to happen after Deuteronomy 27 should look a lot like what happens with Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. This is garden language. And we're bookended in the Torah with garden language. This way in which we see that what they're being called to and what they're being sent into is to be a reflection of what the original people were called and sent into as at, through Adam and Eve. 
which is that God has placed them in a place of abundance where everything is being given to them. And all that is being asked of them is not that they would give up everything that they have and who they are and to sacrifice all that is good and right with them. What is being asked of them is that they would participate in life as God intends it to be. To participate in life in the way that he sees fit. These mountains that maybe seem lost on you and the trees in the middle are to remind you of the Garden of Eden where the tree of life is placed where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, and we see God's people coming back again and again to trees. It's fitting that the curse that Jesus will bear on the cross is on a tree. There's sacrifice and language of this is always, Scripture's doing this, but there's this moment in this place here now where we see that they're at this tree and that there's a choice placed at the tree. In fact, if you go back, Deuteronomy 11 and 22 uh, say a lot of the same thing, or 27 and Deuteronomy 11 and 27 say a lot of the same things. In Deuteronomy 11, there's a subtle little uh, line that's given that actually talks about these two mountains and the trees in the middle, and he references the oaks of Morah. And the oaks of Morah are actually the trees that Abraham receives the first covenant in Genesis 12. And the mountain just off of the oaks of Morah is the mountain where, in Genesis 22, that Abraham will go and ascend with Isaac. And be in this moment where he's called to sacrifice his own son. And what we have talked about repeatedly, because this is a continuing theme throughout Deuteronomy, is that in that moment, Abraham was not supposed to just fall in line with what made sense. He was not just supposed to do the thing that everybody around them had done, the way that worship and the way that culture functioned and operated, because what was different is Yahweh. Yahweh was not like the other gods. He would not ask of you your firstborn. But we know that this is the way it works. The promise has been held out on Abraham from Genesis 12 to 22. And he's desperate. He wants to follow God. He wants the promise to become true. He wants to do the thing that God has called him to do. And he's trying desperately to live in a way that God would approve of it. And so he does the thing that all the cultures around him tell him to do. What is good wisdom we are appalled by this in Genesis 22, that you would sacrifice your firstborn. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, it, it was difficult, it was sad, I'm sure, but it wasn't uncommon, and it's what you did to appease the gods. Because the gods were angry at you. They were vindictive, they didn't care about you, and so you just had to ratchet it up. When that didn't work, you went more and more and more. And so they asked of you the thing that meant the most to you, that w w represented your life, your, your offspring, your provision for the future. Firstborn sons meant everything in this culture. And the gods would say, give me that thing. And then once you gave it, you gave everything you had. If then you still didn't get what you wanted, you were just left to suffer the consequences. And Yahweh comes, and Abraham does the thing that he, everyone would think that he should do. He gets to this moment, he says, okay, I, I, the promises haven't come true. It must be something I'm doing. It must be something in the way I'm living, functioning, operating. And so he gets to that moment and he says, I'll give my son. We talked about this when we did the series in Exodus last summer. That there's a way in which Moses contends on Mount Sinai for the people of God that Abraham didn't contend for his firstborn. Moses comes to Mount Sinai and God says, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses says, that's not who you are. 
That's not the type of God you are. That is not the promises you have made to us. Those are not the blessings that you have promised to give to us. And he contends and he says, Yahweh, you are different. And Abraham, in many ways, was probably meant to do something similar. To say to them in that moment, Yahweh, this is not, you don't do this. We know what's to be true of you, but instead he, okay, fine, let's do it. So this image that we see, Deuteronomy 27, all of this imagery of Abraham in the first covenant that began the people of God, Genesis 12, this moment in Genesis 22 where Yahweh makes a promise that he will not be like the other gods. His way is a way of life, a way of abundance, a way of blessing. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, that his way is a way of offering and providing for you in ways that you cannot offer and provide for yourself. No other God is like this. These other gods, they have power, they have influence. These other gods make things happen, but they will only do so up until it's convenient for their ends. They do not care about you, and yet Deuteronomy is repeating over and over again, this God listens to you. He takes ear to you. He knows your infirmities. He knows your sorrows. And he longs to see you have life and life abundant. And so this story has been played out through Deuteronomy. And in this moment, you see this juxtaposition. And so the people here listening to this, though they were not there in Genesis 22 and Genesis 12, though they were not there in Exodus 34 at Mount Sinai, they are being told profoundly in 27 verse 9. I love this line. Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have become the people of God. These are your stories now. Through all we've been saying here, this is their conclusion. This is your story. And you are going to go and you are going to replicate these moments. You are going to stand where Abraham stood. You are going to stand where Adam and Eve stood because the imagery is the same. And what is being placed before you is a choice. As you are now the people, God will not coerce you or force you into anything. And he will not ask more of you than he will be willing to give of himself for you. And what is being laid in front of you is the choice of life or of death. And this is the language of blessing and of curse. Just like Adam and Eve at the tree and Abraham at the oaks, Israel meets Yahweh here on the edge of what is the garden where things are in perfect communion, where relationship and heaven and earth have overlapped. And as a nation, they are placed in this position and they are asked, will you trust Yahweh? Will you be the people that Yahweh has longed for? Will you be the people that Yahweh intends for you to be? And I need you to understand in Genesis 12, going back to Abraham, this is another moment. Immediately after he stands at the Oaks of Morah and he's asked to make this covenant and that there's all these promises and he's shown this land and says, this will all be yours if you just trust. Trust Yahweh. The next story in Genesis 12 is a story of Abraham not trusting and he lies about who his wife is so that she'll be protected. Hear me out. It's probably not a bad lie. Probably not a bad thing to try to protect your wife. Probably not a bad thing to try to protect your own life. This is good common wisdom. This makes sense. It is easy for us to stand all these thousands and generations, all these thousands of years and generations later to look back and to think, man, Abraham, like, why did you not just like 
just be honest about it. Like, don't you know who Yahweh is? And yet repeatedly in our own life, we are placed in situations and in moments where we know what Yahweh has promised us. We know what God has promised us and what lays before us if we only trust. And yet what we do again and again is we adopt and we borrow and we take up what is good, sound wisdom. It is not necessarily just, you know, being ignorant or being rebellious. This is an aside, but I have to make at least one reference to children and to kids because that's just where I live all the time, right? There are these moments with children all the time as parents. When it's your own kid, you get really worked up because you see kids misbehave and you think, like, they're just being rebellious. Like, they're just being turd buckets. It's all it is. It's like, there's no other way to describe it. And yet, when you work with kids and you know how kids operate... What you begin to understand, and, and when you start to learn things about the fact that, like, executive function isn't even a thing that a child is capable of until, like, eight or nine, and then depending on what kind of different brain development things are going on in them, it might even be prolonged. And then you begin to learn that the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed in women until they're 25 years old, and men are closer to 28. And you think, the prefrontal cortex, if you don't know, is very important into like regulating things, right? So when a child is running and they're going and you see the hand cocked back because they were doing this earlier because they were mad that their brother did something and you go, I know what's about to happen. They're about to punch their brother and he's running across the room and he like jumps in the air to like flying squirrel punch him and you yell, Judah, don't. But that's just Judah because you know, it's just an example, but it's not real life. You yell, Judah, don't. And then he does it anyway and you say, didn't you hear me? The resounding answer is, no, I did not. I did not hear you because I'm, it's like a checkout line. Like, I was here doing this thing, and this had to process fully. I needed to punch him. After I punched him, then my brain went to the next task in line and said, oh, Dad said something. What did Dad say? Oh, Dad said don't punch him. And then he looks and goes, whoops, my bad. He was not being deliberately disobedient. I say this to say, it's a funny story, to make this juxtaposition, we do this to the people of God all the time. We're like, oh my gosh, they're just terrible people, just rejecting God's word left and right. And it's like, no, because you're doing the exact same thing on a daily basis. You are giving yourself over to what seems to be the easier choice. And sometimes it's not even just that it's the easiest choice because you're lazy. No, no, no. Sometimes it's the easier choice because you're going through a really traumatic situation and like you're trying to do what you can to survive. Sometimes you're giving yourself over to just like what makes sense because you don't know what to do because it's really difficult. Sometimes it's the easiest choice because it's just like, I don't know what else. Like it's just there in front of me, so I'll take it. And sometimes it is more rebellious. Sometimes it is more thought out and maybe a little bit maniacal. And if you're a parent, you know the difference. There are those moments still. It's not that they just only, you know, disobey because their prefrontal cortex doesn't exist. Sometimes they straight up disrespect and disobey, and that's different. But in, a lot of times... The people of God, they were just doing the thing that made sense, that like everybody around them was doing. They were doing the thing that just was like the next step. And they're like, I, I don't know, man, like this seems to be a good idea. And everybody goes, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good idea. We should do that. We should give ourselves to that. And Yahweh is saying, look, listen, this is the thing. It is not that that was like necessarily unintelligent or illogical to do. What he's saying is that I'm not asking you to do what's intelligent and what is logical. I'm not asking you to do the thing that just makes sense. Scripture doesn't oftentimes make sense. 
What Yahweh is saying is, I am asking you to do the thing that will lead to the life that I have to offer you. It may not always be easy. It may not always be good in our term and understanding of good. But what Yahweh promises is that it will lead to joy. It will lead to abundance. And he's offering a life that is infinite and full. A life that is eternal. And he's saying, you have this choice before you. You can choose life and receive blessing. Or you can choose the opposite and receive curse and re-enter into a story of death and destruction. And so the story that is being painted across the Torah, these first five books of the Bible, is that there was once chaos and disorder. There was once uh, death and destruction. And there were no bounds. And so what the Hebrew people would have understood when Yahweh commands the seas to go where they to go and the land to go where they are to go and that there are boundary lines what the people of God would have understood because the Hebrews they, they are not seafaring people they are not Vikings they are land lovers the ocean to them is chaos it is disorder it is death it is unknown it is out there anytime you see the ocean in Hebrew scriptures when you see the seas think chaos and disorder think depths of whatever it is of the unknowns this is still true right we still know like nothing about what exists at the bottom of the ocean it's very unexplored but this is where their brains go we don't always think that we, we see it in a more like oh our scientific minds are like oh god made the oceans and then he made the land and because that's the way we know enough about volcanoes that that's how it works the land comes out of the ocean well they didn't have that scientific understanding. What they heard, what they understood is that God has made for them boundary lines. And he took chaos and disorder. And as his spirit hovered over the dark and the deep, he took it and he said, this chaos and disorder, you will go here. And you will only come so far. In life and abundance, you will go here. And I will foster you and care for you. And I will place in you people that are meant to create this life and to continue this creation and that are to nurture it and to tend it in the garden this is what is happening and he is giving the blessing of being like him to humanity and he's saying you now will tend to this garden tend to this life and experience it abundant and full it's the promise to adam and eve The catch, there's one small catch. It is not that he asks everything of you. It is not that he asks you to deny yourself in all these different kinds of ways. He tells Adam and Eve the one catch is that to do this, to rule and to reign in the way that I am inviting you into, you must do it with a knowledge of good and evil that is my definition of good and evil. And you cannot reach out and take for yourself your own understanding of this because you'll fail. You're incapable of, of handling what that would be like because you're human and I am not. I am the creator. So listen to me when I offer you life is what Yahweh is saying. Come and participate in life and life abundant. And we know the story of Adam and Eve. They reach out and take for their own. And in this moment, what is set into place in Genesis 3 is a story and a pattern of decreation. When they chose to overstep their bounds and to reach out and to take for what they thought was a good idea, what they thought was theirs to take and to possess, in that moment, 
What they did is they crossed the lines. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us in those moments that we step outside of what you have placed us so pleasantly and abundantly in. We ask for the Lord's forgiveness as we step over our bounds and our place and our line. And when they do so, what happens is that those boundary lines that God has placed in good order begin to fall apart. And this is the story of the flood in Genesis. What happens is that when you overstep your bounds too much and it ratchets itself up, destruction and chaos will envelop the earth. And they will no longer be in its bounds, in its places. And this is a choice that humanity makes. And this is the thing. We oftentimes read the curses and the blessings, and we think God feels a lot like a really bad parent, a really angry parent, an angry God. We, we project that onto him, and we say, it feels a little bit like karma, doesn't it? This whole blessing and curse thing, like if I do good things, then good things will happen, and if I do bad things, bad things will happen. And yet we know as Christians that we don't think of karma in that kind of way. We don't, we don't participate in that. And yet we look, look at this and go, well, isn't that kind of what's being said here? And you're right to think that. And that's why we're going to spend the next two Sundays talking about blessings and curses. But the framework that you need to see that is being traced through these five books that is ending here in Deuteronomy 27, that we see coming in this moment, is that here we see these blessings and these curses and what is happening is that they're being given this choice of life and of death. And when they choose to do the other thing, it is not that Yahweh vindictively punishes them. It's not like he gets his cosmic magnifying glass out and we're the ants that he's going to torture and burn because we didn't do the thing that we were supposed to do. No, He's actually letting us experience the freedom and the abundance that he longed for us to experience. And he's saying, I gave you the choice. You are free to do what you want to do. And you have to choose. And when he does that, it is not that he comes in and is like, well, here comes the hailfire and the storms and all the death and destruction that I'm going to send your way. In that moment, what he does is he removes himself. Okay, another parenting analogy. You get two this time. Anna and I talk about this a lot when stuff happens to our boys. And we're like, natural consequences oftentimes are the best teachers. There are moments where you can see something that is going to happen after you've told a child, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm trying to help you here, but they won't stop. They keep doing it. And failed grades, uh, bad reports, blood, broken bones... These are natural consequences. And this is all that Yahweh is doing because he's a good and loving father. He says, okay, I tried. I tried to intervene. I tried to help. But when you don't, I'm going to step back. And what you see in that moment, when, when he steps back, it is not that he is abandoning. He is allowing the grace and the goodness of that moment to see all the ways he has provided and protected and cared up until that point. You see in that moment when the parent steps back, you see then, oh, that's all that they've been doing for me. They've been doing so much. They've been providing, making a way in ways that I was unaware of or just couldn't even imagine. They've been protecting, caring, guiding, placing before me good choices and options. And so this is what happens in this choice that is given. There's a moment 
and a place where we see that Yahweh is saying, now you have this choice. And later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Yahweh's gonna, Moses is going to say this to the people. He says, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. This choice between life and death, blessing and curse. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us. It is not beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it. No, he's saying, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Pretty basic choices set before you. And I command you today, Moses tells them, to love the Lord your God and to walk in obedience to him. And keep his commands, decrees, and laws. And if you do so, you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering. It's a, one of my favorite lines. Kyle talked about it this week and just it set with me. He continues to say, And what I'm asking you this day, as heaven is your witness, choose good. Choose life. God longs for us to do this. He, he's not waiting for us to fail. He's not setting traps. He's not hiding. He's not making it difficult. He's begging that you would choose life and choose what is good. And so here's the thing. As we go into the blessings and curses and we unpack them and we think about all that they mean and all that life is going to uh, unfold for us here now, in the 21st century, Birmingham, Alabama, right now, the choice is the same for you. And when you hear in Deuteronomy 27, you are now the people of God. You in this room should hear, you are now the people of God. And our post-evangelical, -ex, post ex-evangelical, whatever you want to call it, people that are wrestling with church hurt, I get it, it's real, and it's difficult, and it's painful. But the reality of it is, is Yahweh is saying to us here now in this moment, you are the church. When you talk about the church failing, guess what? You're the church. That pain, that suffering, that difficulty, that failure, all through Deuteronomy, what Moses is saying is, you're it. And they're going, no, we're not. And he's going, yes, you are. You're the people. You're the ones that have placed before you the choice between life and death, blessing and curse, and it is yours to take. And you can let go of that choice, walk away from it. I don't want anything to do with it. Or you can embrace it. There's a freedom in it. There's a hope in it. There's a joy in being able to make these decisions. They're heavy and difficult, yes. It means you'll have to tend with messes that you didn't make. It means things will be asked of you that you maybe don't necessarily understand fully. But what we see promised again and again is that what is being held out for you is not death, but life and life abundant. What is being offered before you is a land flowing of milk and of honey, abundance, Joy, peace, hope. And he's saying before you now in this moment, you are the people of God. You are the church. No one else. But you. Collectively here now in this moment, this is who we are. And we have this choice to live either before life or before death. And Moses begging with them to say, look, this is what is being offered for you to recreate 
When you see the Abraham language, when you see the Adam and Eve language, we should hear that this is what the church, this is what worship is meant to be. It's what it can be. This is why we pray over you and for you regularly that as we commission and we think about these things, that wherever you find yourself, what you're doing in life, teachers, hear me on this as you enter into the school year. One of my prayers continually that I pray over Anna at the beginning of every school year and every teacher that I get the chance to pray with is that your classroom would become a little Eden. There would be a little garden where they can experience peace and rest in the midst of turmoil and chaos. You want to talk about the boundary lines of chaos and death and destruction being removed, go to a middle school. It's all gone. No, no, no boundary lines are left in middle school. And teachers have this real gift and this joy of being able to offer that where they find themselves. This is what we're meant to recreate. We're meant to tend to these gardens. We're meant to tend to this life that is placed before us. And in doing so, we're meant to trust your home, wherever you live, whether you are a family, a college student, a high school student, it doesn't matter. You get the choice and the joy to participate in what it means to tend to this life. And you get to recreate this and expand it and replant it and grow it again and again. Or you can participate in allowing the decreation and the destruction to happen. It's your choice. Will you live in the life that Yahweh has placed before you that is abundant and full? Or will you choose to participate in death and decreation? And the reality of it is, and what's really difficult, is that line is a lot thinner and not as clear as we would always like it to be. But we must grab hold of this, that Yahweh is good like this. And we can trust Him. And He's faithful. And He's offering before us food that will not spoil. Wine that will not go bad. He's offering before us something to grab hold of that is eternal and everlasting. And we trade it all the time for some moldy bread and Welch's grape juice. Even though we use Welch's grape juice up here at communion. Analogy breaks down for a second. But ignore that. Imagine we're good like Anglicans or something and we use real wine. And there's something profound and beautiful. Something that's aged. Something that's been formed beyond what was the, the sum of its parts. You get to participate in that. And these blessings and curses that we will talk about the next two weeks, they are the results of what our choices are. And so we're going to contend the next two weeks of what we have before us and the choices that lay before us. As the band comes up, we'll move to our time of communion where we'll take the bread and the cup. There are elements of the gift and the promise that is Jesus Christ and his body and his blood poured out for us and broken so that we might participate in this life, have access to this life, that we might know what it means to experience life and life to the fullest. We come and we receive these elements and we hold on to them. Go back to your seats as we always do. There's gluten-free on this side if you're in need of that. And we'll take together as a community and we'll receive of the one body and the one cup poured out for us so that we can continually have the opportunity to come back again and again because this is the story that this failure is inevitable failure happens but what we know about Yahweh is that he is good to allow us to experience the blessings of the covenant and to hold up his end of the covenant even when we do not do so ourselves 
he will sacrifice and give up the thing that he wouldn't ask us to sacrifice and give up. And so this is our choice. And so as you come and you walk down and you take the bread and the cup and you go back to your seats, hold that. And realize holding in your hands before you is this choice of life and of abundance. And wrestle with what that means as the band plays and you sing and you pray and you worship. Imagine what that can mean for you and the house you live in or the home you live in, wherever you find yourself. The places you spend most of your time, the classroom, the hallways of your school, the green at your UAB, you know, like wherever it is that you find yourself hanging out and enjoying yourself. Like what does it mean to tend to this life and to trust that Yahweh is good and to be reminded that sometimes we don't understand exactly why we do the things we do or what's being asked of us. But we know that God is offering before us in that moment a different way of being and existing. And that's the choice for us. And we should embrace it wholeheartedly if we believe that God is who he says he is. If we believe this to be true, his love, his grace, his mercy, then why wouldn't we not live the life that he's calling us to? It's not just about morality and ethics and doing the right thing and being the smartest, wisest person. No, it's, it's not it. It's about living in a completely different way. It's about existing in a different kingdom. You're citizens of the future. You're alien residents here. But that doesn't mean that you just wait and buy your time until you get to experience that. No, it means that you're supposed to pull that this way and plant seeds here and there and tend to it and let these gardens grow and expand until we see the vision come true at the end of Revelation where this turns into a city. These roots formed now in the moments of worship in your home, in your quiet time, in those conversations and coffee shops, these are roots that are growing and expanding to see these gardens become the thing that God intended them to be. This is the story. And the invitation is the same. Will we choose life or decreation? Abundance or scarcity? Will we fight and claw to try to get our way or will we receive the free gift that God is offering of enjoyment, of blessing, of hope? The choice is ours. So as you come, reflect, pray, allow the Holy Spirit to move and to speak in these moments. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are good to deliver to us the choices of life and of death that you are good to give before us in these moments the ability to experience the life that you intended for us. And we pray and we ask, God, that we would know what it means to respond in kind, to live within the bounds that you have pleasantly placed around us, to enjoy the life and the freedom of knowing that there is a, a joy and a care in the confines. Father, allow us to know what it means as we uh, enter into new seasons and phases, as schools around the corner and rhythms change for those of us that are connected to those calendars. And God, we ask and pray in this moment that you would allow us to, yeah, just be able to do the thing that we know you're calling us to. We ask and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower and equip us to choose the good in this space, here and now. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.